things we are back with where are we <laughs> centralization Unlocking the vault yeah. with dan linstead we're having too much fun back here hi folks we are going to pick up on part two of centralization versus decentralization now we've been having as you can tell some fun talking about this don't we need to put some additional context dan if you will around this discussion of centralization decentralization yeah, I think that's necessary. I just want to take a minute to remind listeners, I don't mean to bash the terms centralization, decentralization. I do think they have their place. I think it's more of let's discuss what they mean. And if we can come to some agreement, and the only agreement that I really want to come to is that when you say the words, you need to define the context under which they're used. And then you can begin trying to define the granularity or the level at which you're going to apply these words to in order to come out with a definition that will work for you. So we're going to start with architecture. And throughout this little discussion here in this part two, we're going to talk about architecture, systems, data, people, process, and technology. That's the focus of part two that we're going to get into and what it means to have data vault in a decentralization or a centralization context. Now, I want to start out with architecture, and I want to talk about something called a medical record. And more importantly, and that's the data side of it, more importantly, I want to talk about the human attached to the medical record. And for me, this is important. This hits home. I We built a data vault years ago for, we built several since then for hospitals and different hospitals. And you need to ask the question, how do hospitals operate in the capacity of emergency response, otherwise known as ER decisions? What does that mean to the patient? What does that mean to the doctors that are operating in an ER capacity? For a patient, it probably means life or death, right? You don't go to the ER because you have a stuffy nose, usually. That's not the case, right? You go to the ER because you have a life and death what you think may be a life and death situation. One, because the ER usually costs you a lot of money to go in there. Two, because they're going to run a series of extensive tests. But let's look at this a little differently. Let's look at this from an accident perspective. And I know that's a morbid thought, but let's talk about this for a minute. When we talk about centralization, the question that I want you to ask as we go through this from an architecture or people or systems or a mission perspective, which pieces of this conversation should be centralized or which decision-making parts should be centralized and which decision-making parts should be decentralized? This should help you give it a frame of mind. And the reason why this is such a critical decision is that, or a critical discussion, sorry, is because someone's life may hang in the balance based on what you as an IT person or you as an executive at a hospital will decide. So if you say, wait a minute, I'm going to decide how someone lives or dies based on whether or not I centralize this system when these people and these teams are decentralized. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So this is what I want you to think about in terms of context. So let's use a medical record. And let's talk about a fireman on the scene of an accident. They're usually the first to arrive. And in terms of medical treatment, what are they trained for? Emergency first response, right? The same as paramedics. Now, paramedics usually have a lot more medical training. And I don't know, forgive me, I, I'm not that clear 
on the differences between firemen medical training and paramedic medical training. There may be paramedics that are also firemen that arrive on scene at the same time and have equivalent training. I just don't know to the degree under which that is enforced. And so this is what I mean by what is centralized and what's not. The training of a fireman in a paramedic capacity may be centralized and governed. In other words, if you are a paramedic fireman, maybe you are required to have a certain level of training and knowledge in order to fulfill that role. But let's walk this through. A fireman arrives on scene and they use the jaws of life. They know how to get into a car, a crushed up car, and hopefully the people are still alive, right? What does this mean? What is their job? Their job is to make split second decisions on how best to extract the person with quote unquote, least amount of potential damage. If the person's bones are broken, you don't want to move the person in such a way that the bone would sever an artery or cause more damage. They want to keep the person alive. So they have to be enabled, not just governed, but enabled to make the decisions on the spot that are decentralized decisions that can save this person's life. But usually there, there's somebody higher up that administers on the spot, that manages the group of firemen that show up. There's somebody there that says, hey, I'm the fire chief, right? I, I have lots of experience in understanding all of these different situations. I'm going to govern what each of these firemen are doing because we don't want more than one fireman working on the same task at once. Or maybe we want two firemen working on the jaws of life and one fireman working out once they get extracted, what's the best way to stabilize them. So there's all kinds of things that have to go on. So there's a centralized decision-making process maybe at the captain's level. And there's a decentralized decision-making process with a fireman working on the jaws of life on the machine at that second, deciding how best to maneuver the machine to get the door off, for instance, right? And to get the person to be able to be extracted. So there's a lot of things that go on. Then the next thing that happens are the paramedics that arrive with the ambulance. So the paramedics then take the person's health to the next level. And their job, from what I understand, and I, again, I'm generalizing all of this, but the paramedic's job or part of the paramedic's job is to keep the person alive and to transport them to the next level of care, which is the hospital, whatever the closest hospital is. And it may be by uh, truck or it may be by helicopter if they're doing a, an extraction in a place where an ambulance can't get to. So lots of things to think about if you're a paramedic, but paramedics aren't usually expected. And again, I'm generalizing, drawing gray lines between here. There may be some paramedics that use the jaws of life when they arrive, but generally we expect that job to be done by the time the paramedics arrive and they say, okay, we got to get this person on a stretcher. Here's the best way to do it. And again, there's somebody there, there's a captain, there's somebody governing that process, that team's process, and they have to be agile. They got to make split second decisions. Time is of the essence. This person's life is on the line. If there's any information, now let's back up to the accident. Maybe the person is wearing one of those medic alert bracelets. Now, this is very important. The firemen see the medic alert bracelet and go, okay, they can't have caffeine or they can't have codeine or they can't have this drug or that drug because that person will die. So that's literally a yes or no decision on that interaction or problem. They want to communicate that to the paramedics when they arrive. Of course, the paramedics are going to see it as well. But 
verbally, it's much easier to just say to the paramedics, hey, look, this person has these allergies. Now, if the firemen are thinking ahead and they see that information and the paramedics are still five minutes out, if they can transfer that information to the paramedics in the ambulance while they're driving, then the paramedics have a chance to look for the rightization drugs in the ambulance while they're arriving on scene. And so now you've got parallel teams and parallel operations going on so that when they arrive, they administer the right drug. They already know that this person can't have this or can't have that. And so there's some interesting things to be said. You don't, if you can't wait on a decision, you don't want to wait on a decision, right? Once the paramedics get this person to the hospital, they take them into the ER. Then the next question is, does this person really need to go to the ER? Is this person in serious danger or do they go into critical observation or do they go into short-term care? And a lot of people that arrive by ambulance usually have to end up in the ER or critical observation. So there's a decision to be made. And again, who's making that decision? There's a handoff. And it isn't just about this process. So this is the architecture of the process. This is something that we in Data Vault talk about. There's an architecture to the process so that you don't get overlapping teams. You don't get people arguing over what it means to make a decision. Meanwhile, the person dies. So we have architecture of teams. We have architecture of the process. We have architecture of the data. How does this data about this individual get onto the medical record? And what does that mean at the hospital? So maybe the paramedics can look up this person's historical medical record. And that's a thing that the system has to provide and it has to do it on the fly and it has to send it to somebody in the ambulance on the way to the scene if they know who this individual is. If they've seen this individual at the hospital before, do they have a record? So these are all things that are real-time decisions and decisions. And in the hospital, then they have a chart right? So hopefully they've seen this individual, they've got a chart to think about, and then they have to make life or death decisions. Do they go into surgery right now? If so, is there a doctor on, on site who can do the surgery? If not, can we stabilize them until the doctor can arrive to do the surgery? And what does that mean? So there's lots of things to go. The objective, and this is the point, we talk about centralization. The centralization of the objective is the same across all of these groups, all these teams, and that's to save a life. The decentralization part of it is in the process, in the architecture, in the process of moving the person, in the process of the systems in order to get the medical record out and to find out who this person is and what they're allergic to and all of that. So decentralization in the decision-making on the scene, in the decision-making in the ambulance, in the decision-making in the ER. So those instant decisions, right? So that's decentralization. That's self-governing teams making decisions on the fly that need to happen. And this carries through the systems underneath the architecture. I really believe that architecture should be part of corporate governance at an enterprise level, but that the implementation of the architecture and it should be distributed. And I know what you're thinking, or at least I think I know what you're thinking. A lot of people who are listening, when I say the word architecture, the only thing they think about is systems architecture. I got news for you. The only other thing they think about is data architecture. Is there a stage area? Is there a vault? Is there a warehouse? Is there? No. Think about architecture at an enterprise level. What 
does architecture mean to the business? That's where your enterprise governance comes in. That's where your centralization of your decision-making happens or has to happen. And underneath architecture, you have systems, you have data, you have people and all those wonderful things. And so that's the example I want to leave you with for a minute or two. And hey, Cindy, you've got some experience around teams, a little bit different context about centralization versus decentralization in teams. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on this subject. When we were talking during the first series, if you will, on this decentralization, centralization question, I just recall oftentimes working inside the DOD, we had teams that were geographically split. So you could say technically decentralized physically. But the central goal and the central objective was support of a strategic system. And we had, even within each team, we had representatives of that team, technical representatives responsible for managing the physical technical architecture. We had other members of the team that were responsible for guiding and directing the way in which the team worked on business problems that were addressed inside of the the modules of the system. Is that centralized or decentralized? We go back to that. And of course, the type of data, even within each team and each location, the segmentation of the data that they were permitted to look at, work the application code that they were allowed to look at, work with, all of that was really decentralized based on things like access controls. And we go back to, was that a centralized team? Well, it was from the perspective, as you're saying before, what the objective was, we had teams in case of natural disaster that could pick up and cover one another. It was a like a matrixed organization just for supporting a centralized, if you will, system. But it was sitting partially in the cloud. It was, it's very interesting concept. And we go back to the concept of going, <laughs> what happened during the pandemic? Now that the teams have been split or decentralized, if you will, as a result of pandemic isolation and things like that, why is it, if decentralized is where companies want to go, why is it that so many companies are trying to centralize everybody back in an office? Especially if you think about uh, some of the studies that have been done, and I know you recently read an article that talked about the fact that, or I'll say the premise that prod- productivity has been proven to have been at, at least 20% better in a work at home situation, right? So why are, if decentralization is, is uh, so pivotal in everything we're doing, why are businesses trying to centralize people back in the office? So all of this to say we we need a methodology that is flexible enough to allow these things to occur without destroying the patterns around the ways of working together and accomplishing shared deliverables, shared objectives. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to take a little segue for a second because I think the audience is now thinking, what does any of this have to do with Data Vault? So I want to bring your minds back to that, and then we'll continue on with the process and the technology pieces and unwind it up. But in terms of what it has to do with Data Vault is a methodology for how you build, how you architect, how you build, how you assemble your teams. It's way beyond just the model side of it. And the model is a part of it. And again, when I say the word model, everybody starts thinking data model, data model. Yeah, that's one piece. 
But I got news for you. There are process models, ways of working models, architecture models. There's all kinds of different models, people, process, and technology. We keep talking about this in CDBP2 course, the Certified Data Vault 2.0 class or the bootcamp class. I want to bring this attention back to people that, look, we're talking about centralization, decentralization, and we're giving you examples around what it means to discuss the definition of centralization versus decentralization because it's relevant to how you build and how you build is somewhat set up for you, or at least in a context of best practices. When we talk about the data vault or building a data vault solution, this is what we mean by best practice approach, right? And yes, behind some of those things include standards. So it isn't just the standards. It's about the repeatable best practices and, and dealing with these concepts at an applied level, an implementation level. Now, to get back to the example, we're going to talk now about process. And what does that mean? Now, when I say the word process, I'm not talking about specifically the data process. In other words, I move data from point A to point B, ELT or ETL or whatever you want to call it. No, what I'm talking about are ways of working. These are humans dealing with the process of each other or dealing with the process steps that they have to go through and the humans dealing with the data themselves. So in the case of the medical record and to return to the scene of the accident, so to speak, when we talk about medical records handling, there's a number of different processes that have to take place because now, especially today, you have things like GDPR and privacy laws, which indicate who's allowed to know what about the patient. When it comes to making a decision about your life, let's say you're unconscious, you better pray that whoever's taking care of your health can know everything that they need to know about you and just enough in the right amount of time that they can save your life. You don't want the last thing that you remember or the last thing you see here, here in that step is to be like, can you sign this GDPR consent form so we can treat you before you keep you from dying? That's not something that should be in the process. And so this idea of centralization, oh, we need approval from the hospital to access your medical record. Excuse me? I'm dying here. You just extracted me from the car. I've got, I'm bleeding out all over the place. And now you're asking me to authorize you to access my my, I don't think people think about this, but this is part of the process, right? So at an enterprise level on the other shoe, the shoe on the other foot, sorry, at the hospitals level, when you design an enterprise warehouse and you talk about access to information and you talk about governance, this is where that plays. Who has access to this information and who needs it and when do they need it and how fast do they need it? And is there something in the process that becomes a bottleneck, a political move, a regimented move that might cause someone to die on the other end? Now, I'm using an extreme case, but sadly, this happens. You get some executive or some IT person that thinks they know better and skips corners, right? So rather than enterprise governance working for the person that you're supposed to serve with the data warehouse and the, the BI solution and the answer sets, it actually works against them because somewhere in the process, the, uh, the architecture has failed and it's a decentralized or a centralized decision when it needs to be the other way around. So we got to think about this, right? Decentralized decision-making for teams. But again, it's all about, and I love this concept, just in time, 
it's all about just the right data at the right time to the right people so that they can make a distributed, informed decision in the team, right? So what we need to focus on are decentralized escalation points, right? How does a fire captain of a fire crew, that a fireman crew that arrive on site, make these decisions? And is it the captain's responsibility? Or is it somebody operating the jaws of life to get the person extracted responsibility to make these decisions? When you talk about a doctor, when does the doctor have to consult the family before making a decision? And if the doctor has to consult the family, is the patient stabilized enough that the doctor has time to consult the family? So there's all these dependencies on making a decision when you're in IT or in management that have an impact on the system that you build or the solutions that you build. And so this is why centralization and decentralization are critical to understand at a terminology point or perspective so that when you communicate, I want this to be centralized, Whereas in the same system, this other piece is going to be decentralized, and here's why. When you communicate that with your business users or your executives or your decision makers, that the right policies are put in place for the right governance at the right point. And that's what we mean by distributed governance where appropriate. So I hope I've wrapped that up for you quite a bit. The end of that is the technology piece. Okay, but before I get onto the part of the technology piece is to tie these processes to the technology. Can the technology really do this? If so, how do we need new technology that's capable of the right performance? But we also need to think about systems and how systems and troubleshooting has shifted away from employee-based maintenance to provider-based maintenance and SaaS and data management as a system or even as a platform, right? So the technology has really changed the game in what we mean by centralization and decentralization in the capabilities that we have available. That's specifically how that relates. And so the work of the technology has shifted to whomever's maintaining the cloud instance or software in the cloud or the data center or the application in the data center. It's less about the physical technology or the hardware itself. And it's more about the capabilities and the feature sets or the mixed capabilities of mixed technology to solve a business problem. And in the case that I gave you, the business problem is someone's life. And that's a very critical thing to think about. And I know I, I can hear some of you going, data warehousing doesn't have that impact. They use an operational system for that. Think about it this way. If you have a repeat patient, how do you know that it's a repeat patient with a particular condition? that they have epilepsy or that they've had recurring seizures and they need specific meds that they respond well to and certain meds they don't respond well to? What if the class of meds that they don't respond well to are the common class of medicines administered on site for epileptic seizures that most people are fine with? What if that common class of medicine causes this individual an allergic reaction and dies? What happens then? So you've got to think about the idea of centralization and decentralization and decision-making and what happens when you provide business intelligence data to the operators or to the business analysts. In this case, the business analyst might be the paramedic going, I need to know what is this person allergic to? What is their history so that I can choose the right med now? So history and data warehousing, 
the lines between data warehousing and operational systems continue to be blurred. Now, I've worked in this space a long time, and I have built some operational data warehouses, and I've built some data warehouses that work alongside that are, quote, real-time data warehouse, if you want to call it that. That's the name we, I don't know, 20 years ago, but they work right in conjunction, lockstep conjunction with the operational systems of getting this data to the decision-making point. And so centralization and architecture, decentralization decisions and process decisions and people decisions, they're all part of our job in the data warehousing and BI industry. And if you think differently, I would strongly suggest maybe either you go do more research and learn a bit more, <laughs> I'm sorry, or maybe find another job in a different industry. And I hate to put it that way. That's pretty blunt. But in reality, I treat everything I do especially when we're talking about centralization or decentralization and how we govern or design a system or technology or an architecture as though someone's life may hang in the balance of the decisions that are provided. So in other words, it's not just about the methodology. It's not just about the model. It's about all of these components together. So when I hear the words centralization and decentralization, I talk about enterprise architecture the way people work, that's the process levels, teams, split teams, governance teams, privacy policies, governance procedures, systems, and solutions. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. The good news is that the data vault as a methodology comes with a lot of these best practices and suggestions for getting out of the gate going forward. And of course, we also have some standards for how to on implementation. So I want to wrap this up, but we've got a lot more to go. So I think we may actually end up with a part three on this one. Do it. Let's do so it. <laughs> we will see you guys. This is the end of part two. We'll see you guys in part three on centralization and decentralization. We hope you're still with us on the next one. In the next one, we're going to cover some things like global and PII, GDPR, and domain-based data product teams and so on. So hope you see you in the part three of this episode. Oh, 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 oh,